You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Colossians. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Well, we are going through the book of Colossians and really excited about this study. What an amazing book uh, that just speaks of our completeness, our wholeness in Jesus Christ, that speaks of the fact that um, he wants to be preeminent in our life, that he wants to be the, the central core of our of our life that he that he wants everything uh, from our life to flow from him in a in a deep and intimate relationship with him and we've been learning that and, and clearly we we looked at that last week as we finished chapter one and Paul finishes that chapter in verse 29 by saying to this end I labor to this end that that you guys would understand who Jesus is, that you would truly have that relationship with Him, that, that He would truly be preeminent in your life. He says, this is what I labor for. I, I strive for this according to His working, which works in me mightily. And Paul is just sharing his pastor's heart. He, he's sharing what's important to him. And then he says, for I want you to know what a great conflict or what a great struggle I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And so Paul further demonstrates his pastor's heart. He further demonstrates this struggle and, and, and this labor that he had put out for them. And those of you that have been here a little while and you've gone through... 2 Corinthians with us, and you've gone through Philippians, and, and we've seen over and over Paul's heart for people. 2 Corinthians, it, it's just basically Paul pouring out his heart to the people saying, look, this is what I've done for you. This, this is how much I long to see you have a deep and meaningful relationship with Jesus. It's what I give my life for on a daily basis. Paul talks in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians about all the things that he endured, the whippings, the beatings, the, the starvation, the, the shipwrecks, the sleepless nights, the imprisonments. He talks about all that, and then he says, and also my deep concern for all the churches. And so Paul put that along with all the other trials, because it was such a deep concern to him. It kept him up at night. It, it caused him to miss meals. And I want to ask you guys, what do you struggle with? What do you wrestle with? Who or what is on your heart? What keeps you up at night? For Paul, it was his deep love and concern for the church. For Paul, it was his heart for others. I think if we're really honest, uh, oftentimes it's, it's our finances it's our employment situation. It's that thing that somebody said to us that bothers us. It's guilt. It's shame. But when was the last time that you really struggled, that you agonized over somebody else? And, and certainly as parents, we do that with our kids, and, and I think that's a wonderful thing. But it ought to go beyond that. It ought to go beyond our children as we truly have people on our hearts. I think... As people look for a church, 
This is one of the most important things that, that people ought to be looking for in a church. When, pe- when people say, this is the most important trait of a pastor, how, how would you answer that? The most important trait of a pastor. Maybe it's that he's a good speaker. Maybe it's that he's a, a person of integrity. Maybe it's that he's charismatic. Maybe it's that he's, you know, very personable. Maybe it's that he's intelligent. I don't know what it is that we look for in that, but I think Paul makes it clear to us that the most important trait in a church and and certainly of a pastor is that he has a pastor's heart, that he has a heart for people, that he struggles and labors over the people. And not just the people in his church, not just the, the people that are directly under him and this has application for us that we ought not just care about those that that we know and that we see and a pastor shouldn't just be caring about the people that that are in his church that give to his church and serve at his church and attend his church a pastor should be concerned about people period as paul says i want you to know what a great conflict or what a great struggle how i'm laboring for you and those in Laodicea, which was a sister church to this church in Colossae, and as many as have not even seen me before, which many of these people had never seen Paul before. He'd never been to Colossae. You remember that Epaphras started this church, and, and Epaphras was a part of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and, and possibly was a part of the school of ministry that Paul had there that we read about in the book of Acts as he trained up people in his school of Tyrannus. And it seems that Epaphras was there with Paul and he sent him out. And then out of this church, the church of Laodicea started. Paul had never even been there. And yet he struggled for these people. He stayed up at night praying for these people. He longed for them. He was concerned for them. I want you guys to ask yourself, if you have that kind of concern for people, if you care about people, if you truly have a heart for people. Because as followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to be displaying the characteristics of Jesus. And one of the the most obvious characteristics of Jesus is that he cared for people, that he loved people, that he didn't think about himself all the time, that self wasn't what was dominating his life. That it was others. That it was serving other people. I want you guys just to ask the Lord if other people are on your heart. The Bible calls us priests. The Bible says that that as followers of Jesus, as New Testament saints, that we are priests. And if you look at the priests of the Old Testament, they wore an ephod. And on the ephod there were 12 stones representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was a picture, it was an illustration, it was a reminder to them that they carried the people on their heart. The ephod would hang around their neck and it would be right here on their chest. And it was a vivid picture of the fact that the priest carried the people on his heart, that he cared about them. And that's why it's a tragedy, it's a travesty when you see people in ministry doing it as a job, as an occupation. When you see 
people in ministry that are just doing it because that's what they have to do and not because they care about people. But it goes beyond what we might call full-time ministry or what we might call the pastorate or being on staff at a church. It goes beyond that, you guys. It, it goes to you as ministers. We're all ministers. We're all called to serve. We're all called to, to be priests of God, representatives of God. We're all called to, to be a tangible expression of Jesus to those that we come in contact with. And in order to do that, you guys, we have to carry people on our heart. We have to, to truly love people. To not be callous, to not be jaded, to struggle for people. That's what Paul says here. And we might think, well, how did Paul labor for these people when he was in prison? I mean, he's writing this letter while in jail. How in the world did he labor for these people? Well, I think in a couple ways, we know that Paul labored for them in prayer, first off, because he constantly tells these churches, I pray for you continually. You remember at the beginning of this letter, he says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Praying always for you. And so as somebody that, that carries people on your heart, one of the things that is indicative of that is that you pray for people. And not just, Lord, bless the world. God, you know, touch everybody. I pray everybody will get saved. I mean, that's cool. And, you know, my daughter prays that way. But man, when you truly have a, a deep relationship with Jesus and you truly carry people on your heart, you begin to intercede for people. You begin to care about people and you begin to pray for them specifically, laboring for them in prayer. And it is labor. It, it is something that, that's intense when you carry people on your heart and when you struggle and you labor for them in prayer. I think he also labored for them in writing letters. I mean, these aren't just like little emails that Paul's shooting out, you know, like, hey, have a nice day, I sent you an e-card, you know. These are things that Paul is laboring in. I mean, look at the intellectual content that Paul is putting into these letters. This took deep thought, certainly in, in letters like Romans where it's one of the most profound pieces of literature ever to be written. Paul was a very intelligent man, and of course he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he labored over these things. And he didn't have a keyboard and a computer. These were big scrolls that you would have to write, and if you made a mistake, you'd have to start over and dip in the, the pen and the, whatever the ink was that they used at this time. And I mean, this was labor. This was hard. I mean, we think today, man, it's so difficult to write a letter. Handwritten letter. If you receive a handwritten letter, that's, that's a big deal. I mean, you could probably count on your hands how many handwritten letters you've received since the advent of the internet and email. And Paul cared about people. And he sat down and he, he demonstrated it by writing these letters to them. In our context today, maybe it isn't having to handwrite a letter. Maybe it is sending an email. Maybe it's just calling somebody. Maybe it's stopping by their house on your way home and, and they've been on your heart and, and you just pay them a visit. 
doing something tangibly for them that, that expresses your love. Paul labored for them. And like a loving parent, Paul had goals for his kids in the faith. Just as we have goals for our kids, Paul had goals for his kids in the faith. And, and we see four goals that Paul set for the believers in Colossae as well as for us today. You remember when Paul writes these letters, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And whether or not Paul had us in mind, I, I don't know and probably not. I don't think Paul realized that his letters would, would become the inspired word of God and that we would be reading them in the year 2008 and studying them. I, I don't know that he knew that. But clearly the scope of who Paul's writing to goes beyond just these people there in Colossae in the first century, and it has application for us. And so if you're a note taker, the four goals that Paul sets for these believers and for us, first of all, that our hearts would be encouraged. Secondly, that we would be united in love. Third, that we are settled in our understanding and then fourthly, that we continue to walk with Jesus. And so the first thing, that our hearts would be encouraged. Look at verse 2. He says, I, I've labored for you, I'm in great conflict, I'm struggling for you, and here's why. The first thing, that their hearts may be encouraged. That our hearts would be encouraged. And what a great goal for people, especially in the year 2008, that our hearts would be encouraged. And when, when you read the word heart in the Bible, you, you, you've got to think of more than just the organ that pumps blood throughout your body. You, you've got to think of the, the seedbed of your emotions. You, you have to think of your mind, really. And, and, you, and you really just think of the essence of your entire life, the core of who you are. That's what Paul's talking about. And he says that our hearts would be encouraged. How relevant is that for us today that our hearts would be encouraged because there's a lot of discouragement out there isn't there There, there's divorce at an all-time high there are people that are losing their homes that are bankrupt there are people that are having physical maladies as seemingly never before just all of the the diseases that are rampant. And our hearts need to be encouraged. There's people that are losing loved ones in, in the Middle East. There's people that are just discouraged about the war in the Middle East. Discouraged about the state of our government and, the, and politics. Discouraged about the economy. You name it, there's discouragement, isn't there? And we need that, to have our hearts encouraged. And I would guess that each one of you today could use encouragement. And Jesus wants to bring that encouragement to you this morning. He wants you to be encouraged. And you guys, if you look at the circumstances of your life to bring encouragement to you, you'll never find it. Oh, you might for a day or a, a, you know, a week here and there. When, when you get that thing that really makes you happy, man, I was discouraged because I gained all this weight and then I went on a diet and, and, and I lost weight and now I'm happy. But then a year later I gained it all back and so now I'm discouraged. Or 
I was discouraged because I wasn't feeling that good and, and man, I was just hurting and, and I went to the doctor and, and they, they told me it wasn't that big of a deal and there's nothing really wrong with me and they gave me this pill and now I feel good and so now I'm happy. But then a year later I found out actually the doctor was wrong and I had cancer and so now I'm discouraged. You see how it's like this? Or, man, last year... Things were going so well. My business was booming. I, I just got a raise. I, I found out I was going to be able to tap into my 401k. I, I, I cashed out on this investment. But now fast forward a year and, and my business is not booming. In fact, we're laying people off or we're thinking about closing the doors. That raise that I got, now they just said I have to go back to, in fact, a less salary than I had before. Or that I would lose my job. In fact, they're talking about laying me off too. Yeah, th- those investments that I made, yeah, I, 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 lost, I lost a whole bunch of money on those. That house that I, that I built as a spec home, now it's sitting empty and I'm paying $1,500 a month to pay the mortgage on it. it on and on. I paid 300000 for a house and, during the boom and now it's appraising at 210 and so we were happy and now we're discouraged and see it's because we're putting our happiness we're putting our encouragement we're basing it on our circumstances and see it's fleeting and, and you can continue to think of things that initially bring you happiness but later on bring you discouragement that new car you bought 10 years ago it it encouraged you when you bought it, and now it's a discouragement because it's old and it's broken down. And you got to fix it. At one time, maybe you were super happy about your body. Maybe you were a good athlete, or maybe you were, you know, just a very attractive young lady. And and now you're getting older, and you're getting kind of chubby like me, and you're not able to move like you used to. Or, you know, it's been a while since. Since a guy, you know, turned his head or gave you a little whistle or whatever, you know, and you're thinking, man, I'm just getting old and falling apart. Now I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. It's like last year we did all this landscaping in our backyard. It was phenomenal. It looked awesome. Now after the winter and the wind and the snow and dogs and everything else, it looks horrible. And I went out there yesterday, I think it was, and I was just like depressed. It's just like, man, why do we even bother? You know, we should have just left it sagebrush. And, and it's because we're putting our focus and, our, and we're basing our encouragement upon circumstances. We need to find encouragement in Jesus. Because he tells us, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. All that, that stuff that leaves us and forsakes us in this life, like money, like fame like power, like influence, like health. All those things, they come and go, don't they? But Jesus doesn't. He stays with us. He's always with us. And so we look to Him. Jesus said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. And so we can find encouragement in that. You guys, there's nothing else in this life that never changes. Your financial situation will change. Your health will change. Your relationships will change. Your job security will change. Fashion changes, right? 
At one time, you, you kind of thought yourself real fashionable, and now you look around and you're like, man, I look like a dork. <laughs> right? You remodel your house. It's like, this is so phenomenal. And then 10 years later, people walk in and go, man, this is outdated. <laughs> Do you know how much work I put into this? I love it when people are like, I just did this, though. You know, as you get older, you lose track of time. And it's like, I just rebuilt that engine in that car. And it's like, really, when was that? Well, it was 1998. You just rebuilt it? That was 10 years ago. I just remodeled this house. I mean, this is, this is up to date. This is cutting edge. Really, when was it? Oh, it was 1983. That wasn't just. And so, what are we putting our encouragement in? What are we basing it upon? If it's not Jesus, you guys, who will never leave us and who never changes, our encouragement will be up and down, up and down. And that's why I think we see many Christians living this kind of a life. Because in reality, we're not any different than the world. We're looking for our encouragement from something other than Jesus. Second thing that Paul longs for them about and and set a goal for them in is that they would be united in love. He says being knit together in love. Being united in love. The Bible talks about unity constantly. You remember when Jesus prayed right before his crucifixion? The high priestly prayer? And we learn a lot about the heart of God when we evaluate that prayer because it's what was on God's heart. And Jesus prayed for unity in the body. And how does that happen? How do we find unity? Is it by all of us reading the same books and thinking the same way and dressing the same and acting the same and talking the same and only hanging out with people like us? Is that how we find unity? Absolutely not. The key to unity is humility, and it's love. It's dying to self. That's the key to unity. That's where we'll find unification is in the demonstration of love. See, Paul says, I want you to be knit together in love. Not just knit together. That's a nice goal. I want you to be unified. I want you to be knit together. And and as pastors... We, we want the church to be unified, and we don't want schisms and divisions and problems. But just putting that goal out there that we would be unified isn't enough. Be unified. Figure it out. No, it's finding unity in love. And not just saying, well, I love people. I love you, man. But in demonstrating love, that's where we find unity. See, we can tell people that we love them, and we can say we have a loving church, but until you begin to demonstrate love through sacrifice, then it really isn't a loving church. Then we really don't love people. Because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that Jesus demonstrated, that God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so love is an action. Love is something that we demonstrate to one another. And so every time you make a sacrifice for somebody else, whether it be your spouse 
or your children or people at work or people in your church or just people in the community, that's when you're loving them, when you make a sacrifice, when you die to yourself. And in doing so, we find unity in the body when we die to ourselves. And so when people go and they do a work project for somebody and they come alongside that family and they help them do something very tangible and they sacrifice a Saturday and they sacrifice their tools and they sacrifice their time and they sacrifice their money to make it happen, that's love. And saying I love you and being sappy is cool and that's great, but it only goes so far. There's a point where we have to demonstrate love. And when we do that, you guys, that's when we're modeling Jesus. That's when people walk through the doors of our church and they say, Wow, now I know what it is to be a follower of Jesus. They will know, John 13, 35, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And what is love? To give of yourself. To sacrifice. It's demonstrative. And maybe going and giving somebody a hug and talking to them for five minutes, maybe that's a sacrifice for you because you're, you're shy. You're not an outgoing person. You're not somebody that just approaches people. But you know what? Maybe that's exactly what that person needs. And see, we make excuses. Well, I'm just not that kind of a person. You know what? Most of us aren't. Most of us aren't. Most of us don't really enjoy going up to people that we don't know that well and, and, and giving them a hug or asking them how they're doing and listening, truly listening to people. Not just pretending like you're listening, like guys you do to your wives <laughs> as you're driving down the road, you know. Honey, are you listening to me? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. What did you say? I was telling you that our daughter's getting married next month. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, good. You know, if that's how we listen to people, then that isn't a sacrifice. That isn't really showing love. But you guys, when we do that, when we demonstrate love to one another, it revolutionizes our life. It revolutionizes our church. It makes people want to have what we have. That's what Paul's praying for, that we would be united in love. See, and the opposite of it is not showing love, and it's being selfish, and it's being prideful, and it's not caring about people, which causes division. Because what do, what do we say? Man, nobody cares about me, and so I don't want to go to church. Or we get really upset at somebody for what they said, because we're really not sure if they love us. But see, if you're confident of somebody's love, when they say something to you that you're not quite sure how to take, you filter it through love. And you're like, you know what? That person loves me. I know they do. And so I'm I'm not going to get that upset about this because maybe they didn't mean it that way. And they're constantly sacrificing for me and they're constantly demonstrating their love to me. And so I'm not going to get all huffy and puffy about it. I'm going to think it through. But see, when we're not showing love to one another, when somebody says something cutting or harsh, we, we get mad. We blow up. We leave the church. We gossip. Because we're really not sure if, if we're being loved. Or it's because we're not showing love and, and we don't know how to receive it either. 
And so unity, it comes from love. And man, that's my prayer for our church as well. That's my goal for this church, is that we would be united in love for one another. That we wouldn't be selfish. That we wouldn't be a bunch of autonomous people who only think about themselves. That we wouldn't just be individuals that show up that happen to like the same church and we sit down and we worship a little bit and we hear a message and we go home and that's it. No, that we would love one another because when we do that, you guys, that's when we'll begin to make an impact on this community, when we truly love each other. Because when visitors walk in the door, it will be palpable. When, when people hear about the things that are happening, they will be attracted to it. You remember how people were attracted to Jesus because of all of the love that he was demonstrating? And they wanted to be a part of it. Where's this guy at? We, we want to be there. Mark chapter 2. Jesus was teaching a Bible study in the house in Capernaum. And it was packed. And those guys brought their friend. And they couldn't even get in, so they had to tear a hole in the roof and lower him down. They wanted Jesus. They wanted him. That's the kind of intense attraction that I want to have as a church. That people want what we have because it's Jesus. A third goal that that Paul sets out for them and that we ought to have ourselves is found in verses, the end of verse 2 through verse 5, that we would be settled in our understanding. He says, in attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of of your faith in Christ. And so a third thing is that they would be settled in understanding and understanding who Jesus is and and who they are in him and he says that you would attain to all riches of the full assurance of understanding that that you would truly understand who you are in Christ and the riches that you have in Christ as Paul details in the book of Ephesians. To the knowledge of the mystery of God. We talked about that mystery last week. That it is that we have the opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus. Which was never afforded to people before. To have a personal, living, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. The mystery of God. Something that was previously unknown. Something that was previously not an option, but is now. It was a mystery. Now it's made clear to us. Paul says, I want you to understand this mystery. I, I want it to be a part of your life. The mystery of God in Christ. In whom, speaking of Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You remember, you guys, that this book was written to counter act a false teaching that was going on at the time called Gnosticism. And in Gnosticism, they were told that if you followed individuals, if you followed these, this certain group of people, that you could find true wisdom, that you could find a deeper knowledge with them. That 
come after us and, and you'll, you'll find this deeper knowledge. And Paul says, you know what? That's a bunch of baloney. The deeper knowledge, the wisdom that you're looking for and that people are trying to persuade you to find in them is only found in Jesus. And it's in Him. And it's hidden in Him. Which tells me that it's something that we have to go find, you guys. You see, our relationship with Jesus, it's a journey. We, we're on a journey with Jesus that allows us to continually see God in a new and fresh way. It, it, it's never old. And these treasures, these riches, this knowledge, this wisdom, it's hidden in Jesus. And so we have to go out and find it. And where is it? Is there some store that we go buy it at? No, it's found in the Word of God. It's found in prayer. It's found in serving people. And that's where these treasures are hidden. And I love the fact that they're hidden. That It doesn't all just get dumped on us at once. That as a believer, it isn't like you just get the full load. Here you go. You know everything about God from day one. No, it's hidden in Him. You've got to go find it. You've got to seek it out. And there's true treasure in that. There's, there's true riches. And they're worth seeking after. They're worth trying to find. And see, if, if you're a believer and you're not in the Word, then you aren't going to be finding these treasures. You're going to be missing them. You're going to to be digging in the wrong field, trying to find your treasures, trying to find fulfillment, trying to find happiness in other things. But when you understand that true encouragement, as we've talked about, and true riches and true knowledge and true wisdom is found in Jesus, then you're going to go to the place where you're going to find it. And it's in the Word. And see, the reason why some people are absolutely bored with the Bible is because they don't realize who's in the Bible. They don't realize what's hidden. They don't realize what's there. See, if I told you, hey, in your backyard, I've buried a million dollars. You just got to go find it. You got to dig it up. I mean, you would be a digging fool. You would be out there with shovel and hoe, and pick, and trying to find where this was buried. Because you know there's value in it. And see, until you recognize, and until you realize that there is something hidden in the Word of God that you have to dig for, and try to find, and seek out, and that your relationship with Jesus is a journey, and that you're going to be constantly seeing new things, until you realize that this is boring. This is a waste of my time. This is something I don't have time for. But man, when you realize what treasure is hidden here, you're digging like a fool to find it. And there's a settling that comes about when you find the treasures of God, when you begin to understand who He is. You begin to be settled in your heart, and you're not tossed to and fro. You're not being pulled in this direction, in that direction, 
as he says here, I say this lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. See, Paul didn't want them to be deceived. And to be deceived, you guys, it's an interesting word. It it means to go after something that looks very similar to the truth. See, we're not deceived with things that don't look anything like the truth. We're deceived with stuff that looks really similar to the truth. And Paul says, I don't want you to be deceived with persuasive words. I want you to find your fulfillment and your everything, your all in all in Jesus and in Him alone. And you guys, that's my heart. That's my goal for us as a church. That we would find our fulfillment, that we would find our all in all in Jesus. And I think it begs the question, is Jesus enough for you? And I think initially we say, well, of course. But begin to evaluate your life. Is Jesus enough for you? If he is, it will change the way you live your life. It will change your goals. It will change your attitude. It will change your perspective. It will change what you worry about. It will change how you spend your money. It will change how you use your time. Is Jesus enough for you? And when he is, when Jesus is all we want... We aren't persuaded to follow after other things. We aren't being pulled in different directions. It's not like, oh yeah, I'm going to go follow this get-rich-quick scheme. Oh yeah, I'm going to go follow this, the latest and greatest quote-unquote revival. Oh yeah, I'm going to go follow this hobby or dream and be consumed with that. When Jesus is enough, it changes everything. It changes how I want to spend my retirement. All of a sudden, buying a Winnebago and driving around the United States, sleeping at Happy Trails Camp or whatever, doesn't sound so appealing. All of a sudden, buying a cabin out in the woods and living by myself or with my wife, my husband, doesn't sound so appealing to be a hermit. When Jesus is enough, And you'll really never come to that place of realizing that Jesus is all you need until you understand that Jesus is all you have. See, if you haven't come to that place yet of recognizing that Jesus is all you have, then no, Jesus isn't enough. But when you hit rock bottom, when God brings you to that place where you recognize that you've got nothing apart from Him, that your money, your health, Your fame, your power, your influence, your good looks, your relationships can be gone like that. And until you recognize that, Jesus won't be enough. There's always something else. And Paul wanted us to be settled in that. To be settled in the fact that Jesus is enough. That in Him are hidden. And remember, they're hidden. You've got to go find it. In Him are hidden the treasures of life. This is the the greatest piece of advice that you could ever be given. This is the greatest philosophical statement ever made. Because Solomon understood, the greatest philosopher of all time, understood that life is a vapor. He understood that everything in life that we seek after, the money, the power, all the toys, that it's vanity. It's vanity. The greatest philosopher of all time. What did he tell us? It's vanity. 
What does Paul tell us here? That if you truly want to be fulfilled in your life, if you truly want to have a settled heart, that you'll find the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Jesus Christ. And that you'll go find them. That you'll go seek them out. He says, because I'm absent in the flesh doesn't mean I'm not with you in spirit. I'm rejoicing to see your good order. That speaks of discipline and the steadfastness of your faith. That that you're not going to and fro. That you're not looking for other things. That you're steadfast in your faith. That you're rock solid with Jesus. And then he gives us a fourth goal. And we'll finish with this quickly. That we would continue to walk with Jesus, verses 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Man, there's a lot here. And he says, as you therefore have received Christ. How did you receive Christ? By your good works? By your effort? No, by grace, through faith. The same way that you receive Jesus, by grace, through faith, is the way you walk with Him. Now that sounds like a simple concept, doesn't it? Oh, I know that. But in reality, we don't. Because it's kind of like we imagine that we're on this relay race. And that Jesus ran the, the first three legs. And then He handed it off to us. And I mean, it was a pretty smooth handoff. And, and I mean, look at me go. And in the first hundred yards, we looked good, but we stumbled. We dropped the baton. Maybe we're out of the race altogether. And we got discouraged. We feel like, you know what? I couldn't finish. I'm not good enough, so I'm going to quit. And it's the lie of the enemy. It's the greatest lie of the devil that tells you that you've got to finish. See, the same way you started... As you receive Christ, so walk by grace. He finished it. Now he asks you to just follow him. Just follow him. The work is finished. We're not working for our salvation, you guys. We're not trying to be really good so that God will accept us. We're just trying to allow his grace to flow through our life. And when it does, it changes how we live. But we're not working toward anything. So... Paul prays that they would continue. Paul has a goal that they would continue in this walk with Jesus. That the same way they started is the way they would finish. And it's also very true. That just as you received Christ as your Lord, that you ought to now walk with Him. I think you can kind of have two applications out of this. That the way you started by grace and through faith is the way that you should walk. But also, because you received Him as your Lord, now continue to walk with Him. In 1 John 2, verse 6, John says, He who says he abides in Him ought also himself to walk just as he walked. If you say you abide in Jesus, you should follow after Him. You should walk with Him. Our lives should look like Jesus. That's our goal. That we would continue to walk with Jesus. Rooted 
and built up in Him. Now He goes on to describe how it is that we walk with Jesus. Because maybe you're saying, well, I don't know how to walk with Jesus. Well, Paul gives us four ways that we walk with Jesus. Rooted and built up in Him. And so we're rooted in Him. We're rooted in Jesus. Our roots go down deep into the, the very soil of who God is. I have no idea what that is, but I guess we'll figure it out. What is it? Oh, okay. So Paul talks about how Quickly, you guys, I know we're, we're running a little bit over here, but just bear with me a little bit longer. Paul tells us how we're rooted, or how we continue to walk with Jesus, that we're rooted in Him, that we see that our very life is rooted in Christ. And you know that it takes time for a tree to send down its roots. But when it does, it's established. And we want to be rooted in Jesus. And then, you guys, when we're rooted in Jesus... When, when our lives are truly rooted in Him, that's when we can begin to grow and be built up. Maybe you look at your life and, and you've been saved, you, you've had a relationship with Jesus for a number of years, but you're not built up in Him. You're not growing in Him. And maybe it's because you haven't sent down deep roots. And until you send down those deep roots, you're going to struggle. But once you do... And once you allow your life to be firmly established in Jesus Christ, and when He is preeminent in your life, then you'll begin to grow. See, but it's, it's the private moments of your life. It's what you do when no one is looking as Jesus is building character in you and rooting you that will allow you to be publicly fruitful and grow. See? We often want just the quick thing. We want to grow. We want to be mature. We want to have lots of fruit. But God says, no, I want to do a work in you that no one else sees a very deep-seated work in your heart. I want you to be rooted in me. And it might come through trials. It might come through difficulties. It might come through all those things that, that make you say, God, why would you do this to me? If you really loved me, you wouldn't do this. And God is saying, no, I do love you. And I'm having to do this work in you so that you can become what I want you to become. Built up in me. Fruitful for my kingdom. And so that's the first thing that he says. That we walk with him being rooted and built up and then established or strengthened in the faith. That we would be strengthened. As you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And so four ways that we walk with Jesus. We're rooted, we're built up in Him, we're strengthened by Him, and then lastly, we're thankful to Him which is really a result of understanding that the first three things are things that have already been done for us. That we want to continue to walk with Jesus and we need to be rooted and built up in Him and strengthened. And do you know that those participles, that each one of those words are descriptive of the fact that 
He wants us to walk with Jesus, and each one of those things have already been done for us. It's made clear how Paul wrote it. In the original language, it's made very clear that these things have already been done for you. But the last thing, to be thankful, abounding in it with thanksgiving, that's something that we do. The tense of that participle is written in such a way that you do it yourself. Because you understand all that Jesus has done for you, now you do it for Him. You're thankful. And it brings everything full circle. And maybe you shut off that thankful heart. Maybe you shut off gratefulness to God. And so you're clogging the flow of His life in you. You've shut off that, that circle so that it can continue to reciprocate in your life. As you understand all that he's done for you, you give it back to him. Then you understand more and you give it back to him. See how it works? But maybe you shut it off because somewhere along the line, you began to think that God doesn't love you or you began to think that it was about you. And so what is there to be thankful for? I mean, this is all about me. I ought to be worshiping me. I mean, these songs ought to be about me. But when you recognize that it's about Jesus, when you recognize that all these things have already been done for you, your only reaction, your only response is worship, to give him thanks and praise, no matter what you're going through, because you recognize that it's for your good and that he has your best interests in mind. Let's stand and pray together. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.